Hello, and welcome to Dialogue Sunday Gospel Study. Today uh, is September 24th, 2023. For purposes of tracking with the Come Follow Me program, we are now at Galatians and Ephesians. Um, I'm Chris Kimball, conducting today on behalf of the Dialogue Foundation Board. Rebecca Deschweinitz, Linda Hoffman-Kimball, and Michael Austin, also board members, are participating today. Uh, we're using our webinar format on Zoom and running a live stream on Facebook. We are recording this program, and uh, we'll provide it later on uh, on YouTube and other channels that we use. In the first issue of the journal, Father Eugene England wrote, My faith encourages my curiosity and awe. It thrusts me out into relationship with all creation and encourages me to enter into dialogue. To fulfill Jean's vision in the 21st century, we have made the current journal, all 55 years of archived issues, and all of the digital offerings we produce, including this gospel study series, free for online users. There's a lot going on with various podcasts, with this gospel study program, and a special September 6th roundtable. But I'm most excited about the fall 2023, we are a journal, and I'm excited about this fall 2023 issue, which just this last week dropped, is now available online, all of the text, and uh, and our copy arrived at our house just two days ago. Um, subscriptions are important, and one of the best ways to support dialogue, in my opinion, is a paid subscription. I encourage all of you to subscribe. Uh, however, for the long run, in this modern uh, free digital world, uh, dialogue relies on contributions. Please contribute to help us build the Sustaining Dialogue Fund in order to carry the journal and associated offerings into the future. You can find out more about all our offerings at dialoguejournal.com and specifically about the Sustaining Dialogue Fund at givetodialogue.com. Now, today, for this this gospel study session, uh, we are pleased to um, introduce Paul Reed. Paul is chair of the history department and Simmons chair of Mormon studies at the University of Utah, where he teaches courses on Utah history, Mormon history, and the history of the U.S. West. His book, Religion of a Different Color, Race, and the Mormon Struggle for Whiteness, received multiple awards. Desert Book recently published his book, Let's Talk About Race and Priesthood, which features a forward by Darius Gray. In 2024, Oxford Univers University Press will publish a book that co-authored with Christopher Rich and LaJane Purcell Caruth titled This Abominable Slavery, Race, Religion, and the Battle Over Human Bondage in Antebellum, Utah. He is project manager and general editor of an award-winning digital database, Century of Black Mormons, designed to name and identify all known Black Latter-day Saints baptized into the faith between 1830 and 1930. The database is live at centuryofblackmormons.org. We're going to invite Paul to teach, but first we will open with music, um, the hymn Rock of Ages, um, this version by the Norton Hall Band, uh, and then Gerald Erickson will offer an opening prayer. Gerald is a friend. Maybe that's where always where to start. And a friend of dialogue and this program. He has been one of the most loyal followers of the Sunday Gospel series since the beginning and says it helped him maintain, uh, remain connected with and appreciate the Latter day Saint community. 
in a way that goes beyond what is offered by the institutional church. He earned his BA in political science at Seattle Pacific University and had a long career in newspaper journalism, journalism in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, he and his writer, Terry and Webster, are active members of their ward in Bluffdale, Utah. They have five adult children. God who brings us life. We're grateful this morning for so much that we've been given. We're grateful for the solid foundation that was sung about in that song. We're grateful for the world around us. We're grateful for the people of the Dialogue Foundation, all those that have put this this time together. Um, we pray this morning that you will uh, grant our teacher the ability to use his preparation time well, that he can convey to us a message from the scriptures of, of Paul, that we can learn from Paul on how he was trying to figure things out and how to how everything how everything fit together and all these new concepts that he that he was coming up with and how that applies to us. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, um, thank you to Chris and to Rebecca and Michael. Um, I'm really honored to be with you today and, and share what I have come to appreciate out of the books of Galatians and Ephesians, the two books that I was asked to uh, focus my remarks around. And to start, I wanted to share an experience I had. Uh, this picture is a picture of me in the Hyde Park LDS Ward in Chicago in 2019. I had, uh, I was giving a paper at a conference and my department had also asked me to stay around at this conference for some mandatory meetings that took place on Sunday with the American Historical Association. So I had um, sort of uh, figured out how long it would take me to get from my hotel to uh, the Hyde Park Ward and then back to the hotel for these mandatory meetings and uh, figured I could make it work if I take an Uber and go to sacrament meeting and then leave promptly after. <clears throat> so I went to the Hyde Park Ward and <clears throat> I'm an introvert by nature. So um, naturally, I uh, just think I'm going to go in, not talk to anyone, um, try to connect with God and participate in the sacrament and then leave and go to my meetings. Um, I just sat on the back row. There were at least, if my memory serves, at least four empty seats to the side of me, uh, plenty of room. And I thought um, I would be anonymous and simply slip out after <clears throat> sacrament meeting. Uh, as people started to arrive, uh, and split sitting next to me, and I thought, this is just perfect. Uh, and then, before the meeting started, uh, a gentleman who I came to know as William came down and uh, sat exactly next to me, like the very next seat. There were still empty seats around, and he sat in the seat right next to me. And he introduced himself. He said, you don't look familiar. Uh, like to make sure you feel welcome. And uh, 
you know, my, my heart melted and, um, I felt like I belonged and we had a nice, actually a beautiful conversation. I learned that William, uh, was a convert of just five months that he had taken two buses and a train to get to church that morning and that he recognized, uh, that I was a face that he didn't recognize and sat down next to me and, and wanted to make sure I felt welcome. Uh, after the meeting ended, we continued to talk until I had to leave and get back to my meeting. But I asked him if I could take a selfie together so that I could remember how much he helped me to feel like I belonged that day. Because sometimes in my own congregation, I don't feel like I belong. Uh, and it was really a profound and a beautiful experience for me. And that's the picture I share. And I want to share a little bit more about that experience by the end of our conversation today. But wanted to open with that because I was really struck by the fact that here was William, who is just a fresh uh, new member of the faith in 2019. He said, you know, five or six months. And I'm a multi-generational Latter-day Saint, and here he was making sure that I felt welcomed and that I belonged in a congregation that wasn't my own. And I think, at least as I have uh, come to see the books of Galatians and Ephesians, <laughs> there's a lot uh, in that experience that sort of helps us to grapple with what's going on in Galatians and Ephesians. So... I titled this lesson, uh, All and the Grace of Belonging, because I think um, that's at least helped me to understand what's going on in Galatians and Ephesians. Uh, who gets to belong and how do we help them feel welcome, I think is a central theme in these two books of scripture, uh, these two letters that Paul writes. So let's just really briefly kind of set the context for what's the purpose of the letters, and then I want to unpack um, some of this message and, and sort of how it plays out in Paul's time, but more directly how it plays out in restoration years uh, in the 19th and 20th century church that we belong to. So uh, let me just uh, share a map so that we know uh, where we're, we're, the geographic region we're talking about. It's modern day Turkey, basically, and Galatia is a... Um, a term for a region in modern-day Turkey, and really the churches uh, that he is writing to, likely Iconium, Lystra, and Derb. And then over here is Ephesus uh, on the coast, and so that's uh, the letter to the Ephesians. Uh, the letter uh, to the Galatians is written to, as this is just my explanation after sort of um, studying and trying to figure this out for myself, I'm not a New Testament scholar. I'm relying on scholars of the New Testament here. Uh, the letter is to encourage unity and inclusion through Christ, not the law. Paul is, in this particular letter, incredibly frustrated because he has, remember, gone to the conference at Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15, in which the leadership of this primitive Christian church, this um, you know slow, slowly forming new religious movement, uh, it has decided that circumcision is not required. 
And yet he has word that those who have converted uh, from amongst the Israelites in Galatia are preaching circumcision uh, or adherence to the law of Moses. And he is upset by this. Uh, do Gentile members need to be circumscribed? Cir circumcised is the question that is animating him. And there are those who are preaching within, uh, you know, the movement in Galatia that, yes, they do need to be, even though that conference, had, uh, Paul had thought, settled that question. Uh, so one Bible scholar, uh, Richard Hayes, says it's a bitterly polemical letter. It reflects a critical moment in the early Christian movement struggle to define its mission and identity. And Thomas Wayment, who provides us with uh, a translation of the New Testament for Latter-day Saints, published by Deseret Book, and most of the quotes uh, today are coming from that edition of the, the Scriptures, Wayment's translation of the New Testament. Uh, Wayment says that Paul's tone is accusatory and frustrated. And at one point in chapter 5, verse 12, Paul says, I wish that those who trouble you would castrate themselves. Now, this is not actually um, a way to help people belong, but nonetheless, uh, this is how much Paul is frustrated, right? So he's even violating his own sort of ethos about, hey, we need to be unified and um sort of get rid of sort of old notions of the law. And he's so frustrated at one point that he's suggesting that those who are going about doing this should castrate themselves. Uh, his letter to the Ephesians, now some Bible scholars suggest that Paul may not have written it simply because the nature of the writing doesn't match Paul's other letters. Maybe it was a missionary companion of him. Nonetheless, it's attributed to Paul in the letter itself. Um, I leave that to Bible scholars to, to figure out. Um, but it's written to the Gentile members in um, Ephesus, meaning those who have converted out from outside of uh, the house of Israel. And so think about the kind of ways in which uh, this early Christian church is struggling with divisions, right? Um, so we're bringing people who aren't of the house of Israel in, and are we going to make them feel welcome, or are we going to require uh, you know, the law of Moses? and make sure that we make them conform to what it looks like to be an Israelite in very physical ways in the a case of circumcision. So his letter to the Ephesians is to encourage unity and inclusion through Christ, not lineage. So I see two letters, both designed to encourage unity and inclusion through Christ as the unifier, one, to destroy notions of the old law and the other notions of lineage. So in Ephesians 2.12, remember that you were apart from Christ, speaking to those who have converted from outside of the house of Israel. You were apart from Christ to that, that time, alienated from the society of Israel and foreigners to the covenant of promise, without hope and without God in the world. So Thomas Wayman teaches us, uh, his commentary on this simply says, the language of not belonging to Israel and the covenants is heavily influenced by ethnic boundaries and the words alienated, apart, and foreigners all describe people who were ethnically different. Such divisive language was a common feature of Jewish descriptions of foreigners in the first century. So those are the kind of forces that Paul is dealing with in 
the early Christian church. So let's just kind of unpack this then. Uh, what are the problems? As I have uh, kind of come to see it, the problems deal with lineage and the law. And I think this is really interesting. Uh, a lot of times, at least in my church experience in the 21st century, as Latter-day Saints, we love to picture things um, as us versus the world. Us in opposition to the world. Us on the inside as Latter-day Saints in opposition to the evil forces of the world. And uh, I wish sometimes that we would step back and figure out ways that it's not us against the world uh, in some situations, but it's us against ourselves. And I think that's what's going on in these two uh, letters that Paul is writing, trying to figure out how to bring unity amongst the Christian believers. So in Ephesians 2.11, Therefore, remember that you were Gentiles in the flesh once, called uncircumcision by those called circumcision, that is performed by human hands. Okay, these are lines that divide those who have gathered into uh, the Christian body. Galatians 2.15, we are ethnically Jews and not sinful Gentiles, right? Once again, using the language that was animating the divisions that existed amongst them. Galatians 3.10, for all of those who rely upon the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed are all who do not abide by all things that are written in the book of the law and do them. So he's quoting from Deuteronomy here, and he is attempting to do away with notions that uh, those who convert to this new Christian movement still need to adhere to the law of Moses. And the Israelites uh, who are now Christians who are saying, we have to adhere to the law of Moses, and those who have converted amongst the Gentiles must adhere to those uh, forms of worship that were familiar to the Israelites. Galatians 5, 4, you would be made righteous by the law. You who would be made righteous by the law are cut off from Christ. You have fallen from grace, is Paul's counsel to them. So those are the problems that are animating Paul's letters that he is trying to address. It's not us versus the world, but it's us against ourselves. And I think there's a lot of, for us to think through in terms of how we, in 21st century amongst Latter-day Saints, create uh, divisions. Um, so the solutions that Paul offers, the solution to strict adherence to the law, he offers the grace of Jesus Christ as the solution to adherence to the law of Moses. We replace the rituals of the law with the grace of Christ. Ephesians 2.8, For you have been saved by grace through faith, and this is not on your own. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Um, and, you know, that just brings a question to uh, those on the panel here. I'm just interested in your uh, take on this, of maybe a little bit of feedback, because uh, my sense is that um, evangelicals are the ones that do grace and uh, Latter-day Saints work our way to heaven. And Paul here is saying, you've been saved by grace through faith. It's not uh, on your own, um, not the result of works. Um, but my experience is that Latter-day Saints, we, we need to work our way to heaven. How do we reconcile that? What is, is Paul preaching of Paul's doctrine here, or what do we do with grace as Latter-day Saints? Because grace without works is dead. Chris, go ahead. 
um, I think we are. I I think we are the people Paul is talking to, basically. I mean, I I I think I'm I'm hearing this, and it's as when you talk about us against ourselves, that um, this, is a, this is a good example of one of the things that we do not by strict doctrine, but by culture, and uh, and we should listen to Paul. Yeah, great. Thank you. Rebecca? Yeah, I'm, I'm just so struck by that, um, that shift of, that Paul is trying to get us to uh, wrap our minds around um, and to really take a look inward. Um, and this notion of you would be made righteous by the law, right? It, it could it could have that effect, but you've cut yourself off from Christ. And so you're really, um, if you're not recognizing the grace of Christ, if you're not um, turn to him, then the law just doesn't mean anything, right? That that's the intent. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I there's so much. There's so much tension. I think within um, within Mormonism, um, how do you how do you kind of support the law and this? You know, the beliefs kind of around the law without it taking away from actually turning to Christ. I think um, we get, yeah, sidetracked on that. Oh, I would. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Go ahead, Chris. Oh, yeah, it occurs to me that it, these letters are to specific situation and specific people. And I, I would bet that if the, if the audience, if the people he was writing to we're talking all the time about grace and we're not like our stereotype of the evangelical world that you would have a different message that you would say, Hey, you got to pay attention to some things that, uh, some of the ordinances, some of the practices that, uh, you're, that would be a different message. So I, I, I don't read this as I don't read Paul, I guess, as saying there's one extreme and this is the extreme I want to talk about. He's, he's, he's working at some kind of balance. And I, so I think we need to decide when we're meeting who it, who it is we are and whether we're the people he's talking to. Yeah, I love that. And I, I think that's exactly right. I don't think it's an either or scenario, right? That um, sometimes we cast it as such that the evangelicals do grace and we do works, and never the twain should meet. Uh, in fact, I think that's um, the wrong approach. Uh, my sense, my reading is that uh, as Latter-day Saints, we could borrow some of that grace uh, and focus on grace from our evangelical brothers and sisters, and they might um, borrow some of that, um, you know, faith without works from from us. But that's, um, I think. You know, Paul is uh, addressing a particular problem, so it's an absolutely right point. And this is what he says in Galatians, right? Before faith came, we were held in custody by the law, being held as prisoners until faith would be revealed, so that the law was our guardian until Christ came, so that we might be made righteous by faith. Now that faith has come, we no longer uh, under a guardian, for you are all children of God through faith in Jesus Christ. So 
he's um you know if if you're centering on the law to save you right the ritual of the law it's dead is what he's suggesting and you can become alive in jesus christ and the law was designed all along to point you to christ and christ is here he has come and he is the devotion he is where we should center our devotion uh and his grace makes up the difference right um and that's why i chose that opening hand because that second verse says not all the labors of my hands and in this particular situation the labor of circumcision right the law not all the labors of my hands can feel all of thy laws demands none of us are capable of feeling all the laws demands and that's one of the points that paul makes could my zeal no respite no could my tears forever flow all for sin could not atone. All of my good works cannot atone for my sins, is, is Paul's point here. Uh, only Christ can do that. All of our good works, it's not a balance sheet where all of our good works are bursting our bad works, and somehow in the end, um, Christ swoops in and, and makes it right. But in fact, grace is available for us every day. So uh, I think that's a part of his message. And then the problem of lineage. Uh, and the solution to the problem of lineage is also the grace of Jesus Christ. Oh, uh, Brother Eric. Before you Aaron. go on to lineage, I just started making my point be with this. I'll be nice to evangelicals because I grew up evangelical and most of my family still is. But uh, I'm not trying to say this in a negative way, but they're very... It's very common, brother, to quote Ephesians 2, 8, 9, by grace. But what we don't as often hear from them is verse 10, where it ties, where it says, we are created to do good works. So that's all part of it. It's grace that enables us to do the good works. And uh, if we look at just grace, if we look at just works, um, we're, missing the, we're missing the full picture. Yeah, I love that. Thank you. Thank you. Um and obviously, uh, you know, when we get to the end here of the lesson, he's going to talk about ways in which our conversion to Christ should prompt the good works, not because we think our good works are going to save us, but because we've been converted to Christ and we, out of a desire to follow his example, want to do, go about doing good, not because we think those works will save us. Only Christ can do that, but because we have been converted to him. So um, for the problem of lineage. In Ephesians, he says, But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. So those of you who were Gentiles, were afar off, are now brought close through the blood of Christ. Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. He's trying to unify these various peoples who are converting, right? And... No longer are we going to use the language of strangers and foreigners and those who are far off, but you are fellow citizens in the household of God. And think about those who are gathering into the 21st century church. Are we making them feel strangers and foreigners? Or are we like William who sits down and next to the stranger in the Hyde Park ward and welcomes them in? Ephesians 3, 6-7, the mystery is that the Gentiles are our fellow heirs. Okay, fellow heirs, fellow members, and fellow participants of the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel, in which I became a servant according to the gift of grace of God that was given to me, which was given to me by the working of his power. So once again, 
The solution to the divisions that exist is the grace of Jesus Christ. What unites us as a group, as a body, is our belief in Jesus Christ. A lot of things can divide us, right? But uh, Jesus Christ and his grace is the unifier according to these two letters. Uh, so in Galatians, for as many as of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So there's the question of those who are converted um, to Christianity from within Israel, right? Like they are the chosen ones and they're looking down their noses on these Gentiles who are coming in because they are not of the chosen lineage. And Paul is trying to overcome that sense of chosenness and suggest, hey, once they are baptized, they are adopted in, they are a part of the body of Christ. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And if ye be Christ, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And the language in Galatians 3.27 just strikingly reminds me of 2 Nephi 26.33 in the Book of Mormon. And he inviteth them all to come unto him and partake of his goodness. And he denieth none that come unto him, black and white, bond and free, male and female. And he remembereth the heathen and all are alike unto God, both Jew and Gentile. Very similar message in these two books of scripture. Okay, so um, that gives us a sense of what's going on uh, with these two letters. I want to think through about how this might play out and what barriers we have created to belonging in the Restoration from 1830 to the present. Uh, and, you know, I think if all of us, you know, take a moment, we can think through a variety of ways that we create barriers to belonging. And some of them may adhere to notions of what we interpret as, you know, the law. Uh, some of them may adhere to notions of what we interpret as lineage. Even though Paul is trying to get rid of those notions of lineage in these two letters, we, as Latter-day Saints in the 19th and 20th and 21st century, have not left those notions behind. So, um, you know, we can think through barriers to the way that we um, try to create belonging in the Restoration. And I came up with my own list. Uh, everyone can obviously come up with, with their list, and they may like, look different than mine. Uh, these are just barriers that sometimes work against ourselves, as Latter-day Saints, work against unity amongst us, work against notions of belonging in our congregations. Uh, and these just come out of my own experience as, as a Latter-day Saint, sometimes politics, where we create divisions and names for each other based on our political leanings. Race and ethnicity. And sometimes, especially um, at moments where there's, you know, anti-immigrant backlash, it plays out in that direction as well. But obviously, as a, as a faith, we've struggled with notions of figuring out how to be inclusive for all races and all ethnicities. Outward appearances. I, you know, memorized as a seminary student um, one of the scripture chase scriptures when I was growing up. Um, the Lord, uh, man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. And, you know, just been struck by the way that we as Latter-day Saints, uh, more often than not, 
sometimes look on the outward appearance instead of trying to look on each other's hearts. And we struggle to be inclusive around notions of tattoos or piercings or dress, garments or no garments, facial hair, grooming. Um, all of those can sometimes animate uh, feelings of belonging or exclusion. Marriage and sexuality. Uh, sometimes we struggle to um, fit people in who don't fit what might be our perceived ideals, right? Uh, those who are single, divorced, married, LGBTQ, um, adherence to the word of wisdom are other examples that I've seen play out in my various experiences as a Latter-day Saint. So I want to just maybe drill down on a couple of these. And obviously my scholarship uh, is centered on race and the Latter-day Saint tradition. And so I wanted to share maybe just ways, even though Paul tries to address this notion of lineage and replace um, sort of notions of lineage and insider and outsider with the grace of Jesus Christ, we as a Christian community have struggled with notions of race uh, across the course of our history. Uh, Brigham Young in 1852 described race as a curse. If there never was a prophet or apostle of Jesus Christ that spoke of before, I tell you these people that are commonly called Negroes are the children of Cain. I know they are. I know they can't bear rule in the priesthood. And on another occasion, then he defines an elevated, superior sense of racial identity for the children of Ephraim. The sons of Ephraim are wild and uncultivated and really ungovernable. The spirit in them is turbulent and resolute. They are the Anglo-Saxon race. And they are upon the face of the whole earth, bearing the spirit of rule and dictation to go forth from conquering to conqueror. They are the ones who are supposed to lead. And yet you have Black Latter-day Saints uh, like Gene Manning James. So this isn't us versus the world. This is us against ourselves, right? Creating divisions amongst ourselves. She reads the same scriptures. And she says in a letter to John Taylor, God promised Abraham that in his seed, all the nations of the earth should be blessed. And as this is the fullness of all dispensations, is there no blessings for me? And she's repeatedly told no, uh, that she can't receive the highest rituals of her faith in the temple. So we are creating divisions, right? Uh, um, that work against a sense of belonging the other uh, experience I wanted to just share with you uh, was a couple of Black Latter-day Saints who were baptized in 1911 in Oakland, California. And this comes from the Century of Black Mormons database, and artist Partial deserves all the credit in the world for uh, finding William and Marie's story and bringing it to light. And it's a beautiful uh, story in my estimation, although tragic at the same time because of uh, the ways in which belonging played out. They are uh, baptized into the Oakland, California branch in 1911. Missionaries in 1909 actually uh, performed the marriage. So we know that they were meeting with missionaries for at least a couple of years before they finally uh, choose to join the Latter-day Saint congregation. And by all uh, accounts, they find a place where they belong. Uh, in integrated worship service in Oakland, California. The first record of William sharing his testimony was on February 4th, 1912, just two months following his baptism. And then he was a regular participant after that, bearing his testimony as well as 
offering prayers in, in sacrament meeting. And for Marie, um, it was almost the first anniversary of her baptism when she shows up in Release Society Minutes, uh, and she spoke of the goodness of the Lord and the blessings bestowed upon her. And the following month, she again mentioned the Lord's goodness to her and added that she enjoys the gospel more and more each day and became a regular participant in those Release Society meetings. Things changed, however, um, when William and Marie went on vacation to Atlanta, Georgia. They had friends there, and Marie looked up the location of the Atlanta, Georgia chapel and invited two of her friends to attend with her because she wanted to introduce them to the gospel that she had embraced. She was accustomed to integrated worship in Oakland, California, and assumed the same true in Atlanta, Georgia. However, she was met with rejection. Uh, and we know this because she sat down and wrote a letter to Heber J. Grant, the president of her faith, because she was so disturbed by what happens to her and her friends in Atlanta. Dear brother, I feel that it is right for me to let you know how I was treated when I visited this branch of the church in Atlanta, Georgia. I had some friends I wanted to take to church because I did not know when I would have the opportunity again, so I asked two friends to go with me to church. We found the right church all right, but found the wrong people. It seems like I had gone into a den of evil spirit. So bad was the feelings against us because we was colored. She explained to her fellow Latter-day Saints in Atlanta that she belonged to the church in Oakland, and she said some two or three tried to make them feel welcome, but uh, one of the leaders came off of the stand and invited Marie and her two friends to go outside of the building. So we went out, Marie wrote, and he told us of the line being drawn between the colored and the white people and antagonistic feelings amongst them. He explained that the church was dedicated by the white people of the South, and when he finished, we said goodbye and left, Marie recalled. We knew that meant for us to stay out of there. We knew the line was drawn in the South. I never had nothing to hurt me like that in all of my life, she wrote to President Grant. My friend said, now you belong to that church, and yet you can't go to it here? So just um, adding to the humiliation was the fact that she had invited two of her friends to share the gospel with, and she's embarrassed that she's not even allowed to stay in worship. Had I known we would have been treated like that, I never would have tried to have gone to church there, she says. And yet, at the end of her letter, I thought the gospel was free for anyone that wanted to hear it. I did not know that it was like that down there. Yet I have a testimony of the gospel just the same. The Lord has blessed me wonderfully, and I thank him for it. <sighs> President uh, Grant doesn't respond directly to Marie's letter, but writes a letter to the California Mystery President and asks him next time he's in Oakland, uh, if he gets the chance to visit with Marie, let her know that in the South, we must bear in mind the color line is drawn between the white and colored races. And that if Oakland suddenly became populated sickly by Negroes, evidently the color line would have to be drawn there as well. We should bear in mind, he told the California mission president, that our mission is not directly to the Negro race. I don't know if uh, that meeting between the California mission president and Marie ever took place, but nonetheless, that was uh, how uh, President Grant responded to Marie's letter. So to think about the ways in which we are drawing lines of division 
rather than trying to unify through Jesus Christ. Lines of division based on lineage and race. Remarkably, William and Marie returned to Oakland, California, and like Marie suggested, uh, pick up where they left off. This is a picture of the Oakland Branch Conference in 1921 or 1922, so it's obviously after their experience in Atlanta, Georgia, and you can see in the middle of this small ranch, uh, William and Marie. Then the Oakland Chapel is built in 1923, and this is a picture sometime thereafter of the Oakland congregation. And if we zoom in, once again, not on the margins, but in the middle of this Oakland congregation are William and Marie. And we have other evidence. Uh, William or, or Marie goes back and starts paying Relief Society dues. She gives a Relief Society lesson on January 5th, 1921, uh, with a fellow sister on health and revelation. Uh, she offered the closing prayer in Relief Society. Um, she bore testimony to her fellow sisters. Uh, she passes away in 1930 and is buried in a cemetery in Oakland. William uh, lives 10 years longer. And in his will, uh, he says that he has a desire to be buried next to his wife, Marie, and that his name be cut on the stone, uh, in her headstone. And then he stipulated that the bishop of the Oakland ward be in charge of his funeral. And he wanted the bishop to receive $50 to help color, color funeral expenses. And then he left $200 to the Oakland congregation for the use and benefit of the Oakland ward. Uh, another indication of his feelings that he carried in his heart for his cherished faith community. So continued to worship to in an integrated congregation for the rest of his life, despite the rejection that uh, his wife received in 1920 in, in Atlanta. And when their story came to light through artists' research, the Oakland Stake has rallied around them and embraced them as pioneer uh, racial couple and in 1919, uh, the Oakland Stake dedicated a monument. There was no headstone for William, and they uh, crowdsourced a monument, and Bishop Michael King of the Oakland Knights Ward dedicated it, and the Oakland Genesis president, Bill Davis, uh, gave the opening prayer for that beautiful ceremony. Uh, so that's how grace, Paul's grace, can come in and um, replace notions of racial inferiority and lineage-based notions of division. Um, President Nelson has encouraged us. Go ahead, I, Linda. Um, I once attended, uh, speaking of hereditary lines and heritage, I once attended um, an engagement party for a young woman in uh, Provo area. And one of the grand dames, the grandmotherly generation, came up to this uh, soon-to-be bride and asked her, are you of polygamy? And as it turns out, um, she was. In fact, she uh, was descended from Heber J. Grant. And now I'm hearing this story of how he perceived African-Americans, and I'm the confusion in my mind of, yes, she has the heritage, but he also had some uh, evolving yet to do. Um, and, and I, being a convert from a, a sort of evangelical background, uh, 
every day, even still, these many decades later, I'm surprised often by the the emphasis on on works and obedience and this phrase about exact obedience, that that is somehow the best. Um, I didn't... Or even possible. Yes, or even possible. And I, uh, after all this time still, I have not given up the grace that I came with to this gospel, to this church. And I, I find it a very head-scratching place to be uh, in many ways. And this anecdote about the young woman being confronted by whether she actually fit or not, depending on whether she had polygamous genealogy, that was that was mind-blowing to me. That I had never, as a convert, I'd never heard anybody ask that before. <laughs> Yeah, thank you for sharing that. I think those are the ways in which we create right um, difficulties in terms of belonging. Um, President Nelson, I think, has encouraged us uh, to abandon those kind of notions. The gospel net to gather scattered Israel is expansive. There is room for each person who will fully embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ. Each convert becomes one of God's covenant children, whether by birth or by adoption. Each becomes a full heir to all that God has promised the faithful children of Israel. That seems to be what Paul is preaching uh, in his letters. And here we are in 2020 trying to emphasize that. I assure you that your standing before God is not determined by the color of your skin. Favor or disfavor with God is dependent upon your devotion to God and his commandments and not the color of your skin. And yet our racial policies that were in place for roughly 130 years did the exact opposite. Uh, we're based upon lineage and race, not upon devotion to God. And in a footnote, right, once again, um, those notions of lineage, right, continue to linger amongst us. Each faithful member may request a patriarchal blessing. Through the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, the patriarch declares that person's lineage in the house of Israel. That declaration is not necessarily a pronouncement of his or her race, nationality, or genetic makeup. Rather, the declared lineage identifies the tribe of Israel through which the individual will receive his or her blessings. Similar to what Paul is preaching, right? If you think you are special just because you are uh, a convert to Christianity from within Israel and better than those Gentiles who are converting, you have to rethink who you are in your relationship to Jesus Christ. Okay, so uh, other examples of the ways in which we create division. I loved Elder Carlos uh, Godoy's talk in 2020, uh, where he shared a picture of what he looked like when he converted. Look at his hair. Are we going to sit down next to him and help him to feel like he belongs? Or are we going to suggest he needs to look and conform? His hair needs to match my hair. Elder Godoy said in his talk, if you look around carefully, you will find many in need of an angel's help. These people may not be wearing white shirts, dresses, or any standard Sunday attire. They may be sitting alone toward the back of the chapel or classroom, sometimes feeling as if they are invisible. Maybe their hairstyle is a little extreme or their vocabulary is different. But they are there, and they are trying. Some may be wondering, should I keep coming back? Should I keep trying? I've asked those questions myself. Should I keep coming back? 
should I keep trying? Others may be wondering if one day they will feel accepted and loved. And I come back to William, a convert of five, five months sitting down next to me in the Hyde Park ward and making sure that I felt like I belonged. And sometimes we uh, struggle with notions of conformity, right? That everyone has to think alike, look alike, dress alike in some sort of way. We have to be pour, poured into uh, a predetermined mold. Hubie Brown preached against any such notion. One may not obtain salvation by merely acknowledging allegiance, nor is it available in ready-to-wear stores or in supermarkets where it may be bought and paid for. That is an eternal quest. That it is an eternal quest is obvious to all of us, and somehow education is involved in salvation. It may be had only by the evolution or the unfolding and developing into our potential. Are we willing to see each other as by our potential, look on our hearts instead of the outward appearance? It is in large measure a problem of pushing back at our horizon, seeking for answers, searching for God. In other words, it is not merely a matter of conforming to rituals. <laughs> Certainly we believe in the covenant path, but we spend a very small amount of time performing those rituals they're designed to point us towards Jesus Christ. If we think the ritual is the point, we are missing the point, is, I think, Paul's message. And I think uh, <clears throat> President Brown is echoing that message here. In other words, it's not merely a matter of conforming to rituals, climbing sacred stairs, bathing in sacred pools, or making pilgrimages to ancient shrines. The depth and height and quality of life depends upon awareness, and awareness is a process of being saved from ignorance, and a man cannot be saved in ignorance. It's a process, and he is encouraging us to continue to learn and to grow. And those who show up, for heaven's sake, if they show up, the price of admissions is showing up. Uh, and it's a Christian obligation for us to help them feel like they belong. So I want to just uh, return back to my experience in closing um, with William sitting by my side. The very first testimony was Fasten Testimony Sunday in the Hyde Park Ward when I attended. And with William sitting by my side, I sat and listened to testimonies. And it's one of the most profound spiritual experiences I've had as a Latter-day Saint. The very first testimony, a very tall, large, black man got up. And the first words out of his mouth were, I have an addiction. I never heard a testimony start with, I have an addiction in my Bountiful Utah ward. It was profoundly vulnerable. And he went on to say that he has struggled since he has converted to give up his addiction to cigarettes. And his pleas to God and his efforts at seeking help and trying to overcome his addiction. It was honestly a beautiful testimony. Uh, I don't recall him saying that he knew the church was true, but he knew that Jesus Christ was helping him and there for him. And then the other beautiful thing that I witnessed as he walked off of the stand, and remember, I'm in the very back, so I had a perfect view of what took place. 
member after member from that congregation stood up from their seat in the pew, walked to the aisle, and gave him a hug as he returned back to his seat. Hug after hug. That man who was willing to share his addiction with his congregation, um, his congregation, I think, uh, helped him to feel like he belonged. And uh, to me, it was one of the most beautiful expressions of uh, Christian obligation and belonging. And in that moment, those in that congregation became Christ's grace to their fellow congregants. They were the hands of Christ offering grace to someone who was vulnerable in front of them. And uh, I think that's what Paul is asking of us in his two letters. And I just pulled out, right? So he's not saying that because you believe in grace that you don't have a Christian obligation. You actually do. That, that Christian obligation isn't going to um, work your way to heaven, but in fact, it's the fruits of your conversion to Christ. Bear one another's burdens, he counsels us, and in doing so, you will fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, even though he is nothing, he deceives himself. And I saw in that congregation a congregation willing to bear that man's burdens. So let us not grow tired of doing good, for if we do not give up, we will reap during the harvest. And I saw a congregation willing to do good, to get up from their seats in the pew and walk to the aisle and give a man a hug. Therefore, as a prisoner for the Lord, I encourage you to walk worthily of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, being diligent to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Let all bitterness, anger, wrath, dissension and slander be set aside, he counsels. But be kind to one another, compassionate and forgiving one another, just as God in Christ forgave you. Walk as children of the light. And sort of the essence, I think, of his message, trying to really get us to embrace Jesus Christ and his grace, for the entire law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And William did not know me, never met me, sat down next to me with empty seats all around and loved me as a neighbor and helped me to belong in a congregation that I did not know. And uh, that's a profound example to me that I want to try to do better uh, in being the hands and the arms and the hugs of Christ's grace. Uh, and so I leave that with you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Paul. Um, we will close with a prayer. Linda, can you join us for that? You're muted. Our gracious, loving God, we thank Thee for this time together this morning as uh, brothers and sisters and friends to listen to Paul's wise uh, assessment and exploration of these scriptures from the New Testament. 
We ask thee to bless us that our hearts may be opened to the vision of being one another's brother and sister, to have an open heart and a compassionate spirit. We're grateful for Paul and for his preparation and for his uh, kindness and grace <laughs> in this uh, setting today. And we see these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Greetings. My name is Rebecca DeSchweinitz, and I'm thrilled to serve as a board member at the Dialogue Foundation and as one of the hosts of Dialogue Gospel Study. In each episode, which we record live the second and fourth Sunday of every month, we welcome esteemed speakers from a variety of backgrounds to share their insights and perspectives on the Come Follow Me lessons. Our aim is to spark meaningful conversations about the scriptures, to connect them to our personal experiences and to our understandings and explorations of the gospel. To stay in the loop with our upcoming lessons and this opportunity to engage with Mormon thought, culture, and belief, be sure to visit DialogueJournal.com and sign up for our newsletter. By doing so, you'll receive updates and timely links to join our live stream lessons. Additionally, you can catch up on our past guests and episodes by subscribing to Dialogue Journal on YouTube, Facebook, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Dialogue Podcast Network.